independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. Where our power comes from, actually, is in that space between the I and the you, that kind of shared space. If we could tap into that, if we can find ways of working together to form what I call shared agency, then we can actually gain a lot of power to affect change. In this episode, we're speaking with Min Hyung Song, a professor of English and the director of the Asian American Studies program at Boston College, as well as a steering committee member of environmental studies and an affiliated faculty member of African and African Diaspora Studies. He is the author of three books, Climate Lyricism, The Children of 1965 on Writing and Not Writing as an Asian American, and Strange Future, Pessimism, and the 1992 Los Angeles Riots. I just grew up as a Korean-American in Michigan. There weren't that many of us, and I was always feeling like the, you know, the person who was always sort of socially on the outside. And that kind of experience really shaped my sense of of the world and and of observing how people interact with each other. And I was always interested in how human difference factored into the way people are treated and mistreated. It, it all probably didn't help that I was also kind of not very athletic and outgoing. So that sort of, you know, a lifelong interest uh, that developed out of those early experiences and has sort of attuned me to how I see the world. I was also a very sort of introverted kid. I spent a lot of time reading and and my reading habits were always sort of attuned to being paying attention to those things. So it just seemed like a kind of organic growth into an interest in thinking about the role that race and racism plays in not only the stories we tell, but what those stories have to tell about us and about our society. Mm. The environment came a little bit later. It was always something that was on my mind. I think partly because I was such a bookwormish person uh, when I was young, and I spent a lot of time just reading everything. And one of the things I'd read uh, were environmentally themed subjects. I think it was pretty early. I, I, I know that I was very aware of climate change and of, of its effects on the world back when I was in high school, and this was in the 1980s. And I remember in the early 90s reading new long-form 
journalistic accounts of the science and its effects and what it was telling us about the effects of carbon pollution on the world. And that was just something I'd always been reading and thinking about. And, and for some reason, though, I always found it very difficult to integrate my interest in race and racism with my interest in climate change in particular, but also other environmental issues related to it. And, and it took me a really long time to get to the point where I could really begin to try to talk about those two things together. Mm. Well, we've welcomed people of very diverse backgrounds on the show in the past, including some Asian and Asian American activists, authors, and community leaders, though we hadn't centered those particular conversations on the Asian American experience itself. So given that you've gotten to really dive into this lens with your work, of course, rooted in your personal experiences as well, I would love it if you could talk about how you think the Asian American experience and history through particular events and policies may have contributed in unique ways to environmental and sustainability discourses. There is a unique lens that studying Asian Americans provides for looking at environmental issues. If we are talking about Asian Americans, in large part, we're talking about a group of people who are defined by migration mm -hmm. and also defined as refugees, as immigrants, and in a whole host of other ways. If you're looking at early works by Asian American writers or Asians living in America, a lot of it tends to be actually works ab about labor, people who work the land in particular. And that's a very particular way of relating to the environment when you have to work it to grow food. And so there's a sort of agricultural perspective that you see in earlier works. You see that, for instance, in the work of Carlos Bulasan, America's in the Heart, where he's a migrant laborer, often working in the fields under very brutal conditions. And the kind of descriptions of the land that he provides, you see it in later writers as well, who come from agricultural families, lots of Japanese Americans who were settled in the West in the end of the 19th, early 20th century, were farmers. And they and there's actually a strong tradition of Japanese-American farmers and their relationship to the land. So there's, there's that agricultural perspective. There's also, I think, a growing awareness that that perspective is often wedded to a settler colonial perspective, that is, uh, Asian immigrants to the Americas often mimic or copy the very kind of ways of talking and seeing the land that settlers from Europe saw the land. And it puts it in a very kind of odd situation in relationship to indigenous people who have a very different history of relating to the land. Mm -hmm. And I think the irony or the difficulty of that kind of convergence is something that a lot of scholars have been thinking about. And then I think thirdly, what's looking at environmentalism from an Asian American perspective allows is this focus on movement and migration and the ways in which borders work to encourage migration as well as discourage it, and also to shape group differences. And those, those topics feel to me really burning right now, because one of the foreseeable consequences of growing environmental catastrophe is the greater movement of people. So migration is an issue that is intimately connected to environmental concerns. And one could argue that a lot of the harsh 
measures that are being put into place in the border and the anxiety about migration that's driving a lot of politics rightward right now, not only in the United States, but in many other countries, that those kinds of border policies are also climate policies. Yeah, it's certainly really true that these unique perspectives on the role of borders and the experience of migration itself, they seem really important as the impacts of climate change become more and more severe. And as people are forced to migrate, although that's often been criminalized or looked down upon as immigration policies in different places continue to become more stringent. So I think these are definitely really important views that I'm sure Asian Americans in particular would be able to contribute. And you teach a seminar called Imagining Race and the Environment, which takes a chronological view on how race and environmental discourses have emerged together. I know it's been a journey for you to bridge these topics as well, but what concerns might you have had with the dominant narratives in sustainability that then compelled you to dedicate a seminar to weaving race into its foundations? And can you give us an overview of some of the themes that you cover and why you feel like they should be front and center in these conversations if we really want to understand what contributed to and culminated in eco-social issues as immense as the climate crisis today? Thanks. Yeah. And thanks for mentioning my my teaching and my teaching and my research are so intimately connected to each other. That class, it's a graduate seminar that I recently taught called Imagining Race and the Environment. And it's not actually as chronologically organized as it is kind of thematically organized. And I was really interested in trying to think about how prioritizing discussions of race in, in a class focused on the environment could require us to change some of the intellectual categories we use to try to understand it. So the kinds of you know topics that might come up in an environmental humanities class that wasn't particularly interested in race would be discussions of conservation, land use. There might be discussions about uh, wilderness, about ideas of the wild, discussion about the construction of our ideas of nature, those kinds of things, which are, I think, actually really great and, and important conversations to have and are, are really rich and, and critical. And I should also add, aren't uninterested in discussions about race. However, to center race in that kind of discussion, I wondered if there were new categories or categories that scholars had already been using that would be really helpful. And so that course was really developed around some large thematic concerns. Uh, one was genres of the human, which is a term that was, I think, most famously coined by the Jamaican philosopher, critic, writer, actress, Sylvia Winter in, in her body of work. And she's grown incredibly important within a lot of discussions about African-American, Black diaspora circles, but increasingly in other circles as well. But she she really advocated for an attention to the idea of the human itself as historically contingent. I was interested also in the idea of settler colonialism, which I've already mentioned, as well as racial capitalism, which is a term most closely associated with the historian, with the Black historian, Cedric Robinson. And so those, and then also I was interested in thinking about concepts that might have emerged from indigenous circles as well, and also what it means to talk about climate migration. So those were the big thematic concerns that shaped that seminar. And we tried to create a kind of theoretical apparatus 
around each of those big categories and then spent the second half of the semester looking at several literary texts, thinking about how to apply those concepts to specific examples. Mm, It's certainly interesting to think about how our understandings of our eco-social issues might shift and change depending on whose perspectives we center as we learn more about these topics. And more broadly, your lens has been through that of a professor of English literature, which of course led to the unique way that you wrote climate lyricism and taking readers through the different climate literature that you've engaged with. And I hesitate to categorize because there are never neat boundaries, but I would be curious if you've been able to broadly name the different types of climate expressions and the types of impact you think they've had. For example, whether the differences in their use of speech, sounds, imagery, more objective or more relational voices and perspectives, more creative or imaginative or otherwise more literal and nonfiction. Like what are some of the key technicalities of different forms of climate literature you've unpacked and thought through in terms of the impacts they may have on the reader sentiments and climate discourses at large? Well, you know, one of the things that was really interesting for me about writing climate lyricism is that when I set out to write it, I did not think I was going to spend so much time writing about poetry. It's not something I had written a lot about. And frankly, it's very intimidated. I, I think I even wrote that in the book about intimidated about writing poetry because it just felt to me already a pretty specialized domain of discussion of critical inquiry. And I sometimes felt ill-equipped to do that work. But I kept getting drawn back to the poetry again and again, as well as to the criticism about the poetry. And I was trying to figure out why was it that the poetry spoke to me in a way, and contemporary poetry in particular, with all of its experimentation and radical kind of flexibility of form, why why did that draw me in a way that I was finding myself trying to spend a lot of time reading books about, uh, that center climate change, especially novels that center climate change, and they were leaving me cold. You know, it wasn't like I wanted to spend a lot of time with them, though I could certainly appreciate a lot of the work that they did. There was something about the structure of fiction in particular and, and, the, and the long-form narrative form that seemed to me maybe really focused on like conclusions, like everything's always kind of driven to thinking about what happens at the end. Mm. And and there's a way in which, you know, you kind of uh, have a, a plot off and center around a, a kind of resolution of a problem. And maybe part of the dissatisfaction I was feeling in, in a lot of the lit- novels I was reading was the sense that 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 form and, and, and the way that stories are structured in, in novels don't really capture for me the challenges of trying to capture the, or, or yeah, to try to give shape to really sort of transient experiences, really hard to nail down experiences. And the poetry is what seemed to me always to be what was always trying to do that, was always trying to stay in a moment, see it in all of its complexities, put it in all sorts of different kinds of scales, and really invite us to linger in in a moment and pay attention to that moment. And that was what I found to be really like what I really wanted to do was, uh, is to find literature that could help me to just kind of occupy my everyday experiences. 
in new ways, to see it in different perspectives, and and that that would also provide the crack to allow concerns about climate change to be something that was a lively presence in my everyday existence, mm. and not something that was somehow set far in the future, or somewhere far away, or that involved really powerful pick people who made these kinds of decisions and ultimately didn't have anything to do with ordinary people like myself. Yeah, and we recently welcomed Craig Santos Perez on the show, and I know that you've oh, engaged yeah, with his poetry as well. So I can really relate to the impact of poetry that you shared here in terms of how they really keep you and hold you in the moment and shift you in ways that a lot of other forms of writing haven't been able to do so for me either. So really profound to consider how the forms of writing can also affect people in different ways. And so lyric beyond the typical lyrics of a song also refers to more broadly to writing, which expresses the writer's emotions. And part of your focus has been on what you call a revived lyric, which you share is not concerned with the spotlighting of an individual eye or the exploration of a profound psychic interior with which the lyric is often associated, but focuses instead on the space between a first-person speaker and a second-person addressee, end quote. So that would be the space between the I and the you to whomever the writing is meant for. Why has this been of particular interest to you? And what type of impact could it implicitly or explicitly have? And if you have some examples to weave in here, I think that would be really helpful as well. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think the, the kind of description that I provide of the lyric as, as this kind of deep exploration of interiority, of, of a first-person voice lends itself to a kind of intimacy, you know, like this is ground zero of what it means to be me at this moment observing this event or this really like kind of slice of an event. And and so that that form really is interesting to me because that really is is honing attention on onto the everyday in such an intense and powerful way. And there's so much, there's already so many tools and and conventions that help us to try to do that that poets have been developing for a long time. But I did not feel that that an aesthetic form that leads you back to yourself and to your interiority and perhaps cuts you off from other people was the goal of a of a way of reading or a way of paying attention that was trying to address a topic like climate change which is first and foremost a social and political problem so what i wanted to do was to take what lyricism is so good at, or lyrical poetry is so good at, which is paying attention to a moment and inviting you to sit with it. And then to connect that kind of attentiveness to a larger social project, to a questioning about what it means to share that moment with another person. So the space between the I and the you, and not just an exclusive focus on the I. Part of what drives that move for me is this sense that individually, there's actually very little we can do. We're, we're, we're not that powerful individually. Where our power comes from actually is in that space between the I and the you, that kind of shared space. 
if we could tap into that, if we can find ways of working together to form what I called shared agency, then we can actually gain a lot of power to affect change. And, and so I was really interested in thinking about how the attention to the particular, to the minute, to the everyday could lend itself to an aesthetic practice that encouraged greater sociality, that encouraged the possibility of more shared agency. Also, in addition to the different types of texts that exist and how they may shape our views and imaginations and emotions in different ways, you've also noted as an observation that when you travel to different places, the news and angles of narratives change also depending on which nation state you're in. So there's this geographical element to changing narratives. And then now there's also the algorithmic element to changing narratives in that with our attention economy, social media and search engines also shape the landscape of what content we see based on what has in our search history appealed or engaged our attention the most, which would be different for each person. So kind of like situating people within psychological maps that tend to further confirmation bias and affix people deeper into particular perspectives. I'd be curious how you think the geographical narrative changes and the psychological geographical narrative changes as well, if you've had a chance to think through this, how they influence people's ways of engaging with the climate crisis and climate action and either pose as challenges or could even be understood better so we can actually not be entirely absorbed by them, but use them to calibrate our perceptions of the messy reality and how we can best show up given the complexity and interconnectedness and immensity of our socioecological crises. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a really important question. And I would start by saying that one of the things I've been really interested in, as you probably can tell, is this idea of forms. There's been a kind of uh, revival of interest in this topic and an expansion of what we mean by forms. Uh, scholars like Carolyn Levine and Anna Kornblau in particular have really asked us to think about form as as kind of principles of shaping the world around us and giving shape to that world. Forms are everywhere, everywhere they overlap, and, and they actually produce very specific kinds of experiences. And so I, I think just with that I kind of simple idea in mind, it, it's really interesting to think about, for instance, how our electronic mediated experiences are following algorithms that are, are are actually guided by all sorts of different kinds of formal principles. You can think of the nation state itself as a form and the ways in which algorithms might conform to the nation state to produce certain kinds of experiences or different, or the ways in which marketers are always looking for for targeted consumers and trying to actually shape categories of consumers that they can target with mm -hmm. advertisers and to sell their products more effectively. And that produces, you know, advertising and different kinds of media landscapes that are shaped just on that principle alone and the desire to produce smaller and smaller groups of people and so on and so forth. So so that that, you know, would shape and, and actually deform the kind of experiences we have online. There's very little 
even if you're on Twitter, I think there's it promises a kind of shared experience. But I think actually it's a very particularized and differentiated experience, you know, because the timeline that you are looking at is often so shaped by all of these different forms, which are shaped by desire for different kinds of uses that are independent of the user. That's an abstract way of putting it, but I hope that made sense. But I would actually add even more that our built landscape is increasingly also similarly shaped by all these ideas about the importance of the individual, about prizing of certain kinds of private experiences. And, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion about this, an important discussion about the way in the U.S. in particular, and especially like kind of accelerated by the pandemic, you see that people really spend a lot of time at home. They don't even go to work as much anymore if you're lucky enough to avoid having to expose yourself to a dangerous virus. And we've seen also increasingly a kind of attenuation of public spaces, you know, that are neither work nor home. And and actually, it's those kind of public spaces that are really important forms that knit together um, an urban landscape and actually make it a vibrant place to live, because those are places where you go to be around other people, where you can linger and spend time and uh, have kind of chance encounters and develop all sorts of social occasions and so on and so forth. And those kinds of spaces are becoming fewer and fewer, and they're becoming lost to us. All of this is to say, I think that increasingly Increasingly, the forms are being organized to create social experiences that lead primarily to loneliness. And there's kind of increased sense of isolation. And this further erodes the possibilities for uh, developing a sense of shared experience, of collectivity, and, and even of solidarity, which is an enormous impediment to the very kind of democratic politics, I think, is what we need to address some of our most urgent concerns, climate change and environmental concerns being an important part of that. Yeah, I think that's really key to point out that there seems to be a loss of a lot of these public spaces where in how we're being shaped to better understand the world and how we're engaging with information, these public spaces are where people can engage with other people at a really direct and human scale way that for me also feels a lot more humanizing in that fosters greater empathy too. And that is less reductionistic and mediated by platforms that cannot properly capture the entire complex emotional human experience. Every time I'm online, you know, and or I read things about what some, you know, political leader says or or public figure says that's just kind of outrageous. And, and you know, I find myself wondering, like, how can you possibly believe that about another person? Mm. You know, it just seems outrageous, like deliberately insulting. But I think, as you just said, you know, extreme beliefs about other people are possible when you never have to test them against actually being in the same space with them or interacting with them. Yeah. So, you know, as the forms of how we consume media and information continue to shift and evolve, I think it's definitely important to lean into and try to understand how that's actually changing our culture and changing the ways that we relate to one another and perceive the world as well. 
And overall, I think an emotion that most of us can relate to is feeling a sense of overwhelm when learning about and engaging with information on global issues like climate change and, of course, their interrelated social and cultural concerns as well. And a lot of our instinctive reactions may be to try to overcome that sense of overwhelm because it's a lot and it can make us feel stuck. But you've named that it's important to feel overwhelmed so that everyday denial can give way to everyday attention. And notably in the introduction to your book, you share, I want to find ways to democratize agency that break the spell of powerlessness so that thinking about climate change emboldens rather than leads to a shrinking back. What I'm calling climate lyricism refers to this self-conscious working through. It is the striving for a practice that insists, as the philosopher and activist Grace Lee Boggs insisted, that thinking should not be separated from doing, end quote. I would love if you could elaborate more on the role of this feeling of overwhelm and then what you mean by cultivating a practice of turning everyday denial into everyday attention. Okay, I can answer this question in two ways. So the, the first is more abstract. The second is more practical. Mm -hmm. Abstractly, I think it's maybe a mistake to say that we have a hard time dealing with like unpleasant news or really like terrible events or catastrophes even. And in some ways, actually, that a lot of people, maybe most of us, don't have, actually have a problem with that. You know, when a crisis happens, we, we often snap into a kind of attentive mode. Like we're really, you know, we're aware of the problem and we're addressing it and we deal with it, you know. We try, we check in on others. Uh, so, so you know, actually in emergencies, we're, we're actually really good. You know, if there's a, if there was a, if we were in a classroom and a fire broke out, my students would, would get up and they'd know what to do, you know, and they'd be really good and help each other out. And anyone who needed help getting out would be helped. We'd be really good citizens. We'd be really there for each other. So I think it's, it's sometimes maybe misleading to say that, you know, the reason we have so much trouble thinking about climate change is because it's such an awful, awful thing that's happening, which is true, perhaps to a certain degree. But I, I think actually the, the reason that uh, a lot of us turn away from climate change, find it really difficult to think about it is because we feel a sense of powerlessness. Like, what's the good of thinking about it if there's nothing we can do about it? Right. And so that feeling of powerlessness is is actually what encourages people to turn away and, and really to kind of occupy states of soft denial, you know, to kind of say it's a problem, but then really don't do anything about it. You know, and so so we need to find ways in which like to think about climate change. These people feeling, you know, like emboldened, you know, there's things we can do and, and we need to do it and let's do it, you know, and that, that sense that it's possible and that it's happening and that there are already sort of ready-made pathways for how to, how to make a difference in your life, in your community, and, and at larger and larger scales. And it's those grooves we have to really form and develop and encourage people to, to follow. Uh, I was just actually talking to someone else about this, um, that uh, years ago, when I was young and in high school, I remember that there were quite a few young people uh, who, for ethical reasons, not always necessarily related to the environment, but to some degree, yes, there were some young people, very few in number, who said that they weren't going to eat meat anymore. They were uh, vegetarians. And, and that what felt like really radical and it was really difficult for them to do because, you know, uh, every restaurant at that time would have had meat and, and there were very few vegetarian options. And, you know, and they would have to have these very long, complex conversations with their families about what they do. And people would complain about the 
them being sort of picky eaters and so on and so forth. You fast forward several decades and that's a you know, that choice isn't so unusual anymore in the United States. There's more and more people who have gone vegetarian. You go to a restaurant and almost every restaurant makes an effort to have some vegetarian choices. There are lots of really good restaurants, at least around me, that only serve non-meat food. And and even people who still eat meat, who like meat, I personally eat meat myself, um, are all trying to eat less of it. And so it's not unusual to have like a meatless Monday or something like that, right? So those early people who said that they were going to become vegetarians in the United States for ethical reasons about the treatment of animals and for whatever other reasons created a kind of groove that has deepened over the years. So that's kind of like one sort of minor example of how, you know, an engagement with an issue can create kind of pathways of action that others can follow and uh, and broaden and and that finally reach scales to make a difference. Uh, you know, so in my own personal life, I try to do a, a, as much as I can think of to to make a difference, knowing that individually it really doesn't have any kind of impact on climate change, but that it it does first make me feel better about <laughs> about what's happening. That I'm not just being to- totally a passive observer, but also that that they might offer occasion for thinking through the real practical problems about how to change the way we lead our lives, which we all have to do. You know, like I think electric cars are great, but they're not going to solve the problem, you know, the environmental problems that's associated with transportation. And and a movement toward electric cars will also have to be accompanied by a, a shift away from individual automobility toward public transportation. So I've really made an effort in my own life not to drive my car to work. And so I either take the train and the bus or I walk part of the way and then take a bus or I I bike, you know, and that's been one way in which I've tried to do this kind of practical working out in my own life. And it's also really interesting because then I start to realize, oh, you know, there's all these practical problems with trying to just commute to work this way that I hadn't realized before. And so it's not just an intellectual issue for me. It's a very practical issue, lots of problem solving that I have to figure out and hopefully would could help other people figure out if they also wanted to reduce their automobile use. And the last thing I wanted to go over with you is in a talk that you contributed to titled Do Our Lives Matter at Boston College, you made a statement that schools are being run like a business and how it's concerning that students are taught to think of themselves as businesses as well, who maybe need to make smart decisions about their educational choices so they can maximize their return on investments for the courses that they take. So what did you mean by this? And more broadly, how do you think the incentives of our economic system and what it assigns greater value to based on it itself being reliant on endless extractivism for profit, how might these sort of incentives be shaping entire new generations of highly educated adults to think in certain ways to orient their lives and values towards particular objectives, and also by extension, more likely to miss out on the opportunity to gain other forms of knowledge that might not be valued by the seemingly more financially secure corporate world, or even be seen as troublesome to that status quo? 
you know, just as I said that there's these kinds of uh, ordering principles, ideas that are shaping our online experiences as well as our experiences of the built environment, I think it certainly shapes our, our major institutions and universities are one of those major institutions. It, it's remarkable to me how much the uh, language of business in particular has kind of infiltrated a lot of the ways in which uh, students will routinely talk about their educational experiences, the you know, emphasis on efficiency, uh, return on investment, thinking of themselves as kind of human capital and, and you know, how do you sort of nurture and build that capital and invest it wisely so that you get good returns. And it's understandable given how expensive colleges and universities have gotten you know, colleges and universities, education in general is an incredibly labor-intensive endeavor, and I just don't see any way around it. It's not one of those kinds of endeavors that you can uh, automate so much uh, that you can reduce the, the, the labor needs, and, this, and especially the need for very highly skilled labor to, to make it work. And labor is expensive. And so there's really no way, I think, actually, that something like education could ever really be cheap. So the question is, who pays for an education? And, and increasingly, the answer has been the students who are encouraged to think of themselves as consumers who are buying a product. But there's an older idea of education, one I'm really partial to, that understands education not on that kind of individualistic basis but that everyone benefits, actually, from people being educated, that education is a social good that benefits the whole community when you have young people who are educated, who are highly trained professionals who can then go off into their respective communities and, and do things for their communities in a way that they couldn't if they didn't have that kind of education, that kind of background. So everyone benefits from having an educated population. And I think if you take that perspective, the onus of who pays then shifts away from the individual and more to the collective. You start to see that, you know, public education should be more funded. You see the, the need to sort of help students out uh, and to subsidize schools so that the cost is less. There may be less emphasis on, on making colleges a, a kind of luxurious experience with fancy fitness centers and so on and so forth that will attract consumers, which is what happens when you use a consumer model for education. Uh, you, so those things become less important and more it's like, you know, pouring money into things like hiring more faculty, making sure that they're trained really well to see what they're doing, that the emphasis is on, on, on the quality of the education. And, and the quality and the support of the workers who are providing that education. And, and so I think that's, uh, you know, that for me, that, that's something that, that is really important and, and increasingly lost. And, and it's really hard for students not to, not to have to think about. So I, I wouldn't blame students who talk about their education as a return on investments or thinking about it as an investment because everything is kind of set up for them. You know, it's... Uh, again, a kind of uh, social organization that's kind of pressuring them into this kind of position. But I, I hope even in that kind of circumstances, our students can not prioritize the most practical aspects of their education, but also to take away the less tangible parts of the education, the things that will enrich their lives, that will make them more aware of their 
of their society and how we've gotten to where we are, and that and that when they when they graduate, that they will then take what they've learned and put it to use for their communities. You know, uh, that they're going to be involved in their church groups or in the city council or in the school board, and that they're going to bring a level of sophistication and understanding based on what they learned in school that can, you know, help build up communities rather than constantly tear them down in the name of the individual. Mm. Yeah, so I guess we can definitely recognize this as a systemic challenge in that how people make choices about the practicality of their degrees might shift if education itself were viewed and funded as a collective and social good as opposed to an individual investment. And we are nearing the end of our time together, but I wanted to share a quote from you here, bringing back in how we might dream up and imagine our futures. You share, sustaining attention to climate change in the everyday means living without the assumption of a predetermined future. It begins with believing that nothing about what is to come is fixed and that the range of what might happen in the next few years and decades and centuries is wider, more varied, and more full of surprises than is usually thought, end quote. So with this prompt, I want to leave the space open for you to share anything else that I didn't get to ask you about, as well as any other calls to action you have for our listeners that can continue to inspire us to turn everyday denial into everyday attention. Thank you so much for, for this conversation and, and for so much attention to my work. I'm so impressed uh, and flattered. I, I think finally, just one last thought I have is that it's okay to feel bad. It's it's not a symptom that you've given up, but maybe just um, a sign that you, you've recognized that there are some serious challenges we're faced with, and those challenges are growing graver every day. There are lots of times when I feel just kind of overwhelmed and and sad myself, and uh, um and and fall into a sense of like pity, you know. Like I don't, I just I think there's you know like things are just going to get really worse, and and I just don't see a way out, and and I can feel despairing, and and I think it's okay to feel that way, because I think you are then recognizing the scale of the problem, the scale of the crisis we find ourselves in. You know, if you just pay attention to the news. And just pay attention to all the extreme weather events that are happening. <laughs> it's really bad. And it's overwhelming. But then you can't stop there. You have to find some way. Because you really don't have a choice. Because you have to keep going. You have to find a way to face what is really, truly awful. And figure out what you can do to make it a little bit better and to try to work constantly, creatively with other people on how to solve the problems that we're faced with.
What has been one of the most impactful books or publications that you've engaged with? Oh, that's a good question. Something that I've been writing on and that I really like is uh, a new book of poetry by Salma Sharif called Customs. It's a pretty challenging, formally abstract work, but I find it extraordinarily moving. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Nothing is coming to mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I, I have uh, a motto. <laughs> no worries. Or something that you do when you're feeling overwhelmed, or maybe you just sit with the overwhelm is the answer. <laughs> sit with the overwhelm, or I watch a lot of bad TV. That that seems to help sometimes when I'm really, especially feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. And what is your greatest source of inspiration at the moment? That's an interesting question. I think it's actually my father. My mother passed away this summer, and my father is 80 and, and struggling quite a bit. And uh, and it's really been inspirational to see how he carries on in the face of his loss. Mm. Uh, they were together for like 62 years, so you can imagine the wow. scale of the loss for him. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry for your loss and for him as well. Thank we you. are coming to a close here. And to our listener, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Min's work, you can head to minhyungsong.com. And we will also have other references to Min's work and from this conversation linked in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Min, we really appreciate your time with us here. And thank you so much for joining me on the show. For now, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? I'd say just, uh, you know, keep trying, find your people, do what you think is best, and don't don't uh, let other people tell you to give up. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Power by India Blue. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>